In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED Speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad software. Hey, and welcome to the show. Today, we're lucky enough to have a very good friend of mine, Theo, who is the world-renowned futurist and also fellow TED speaker. Um, I'm not going to go through all his bio, but this guy is an absolute legend. And so I'm just going to hand it over to him and let him do a, a bit of an intro of the stuff he's been doing, some of the, you know, the the talks he's been doing. And yeah, let's, let's let the good times roll. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, I appreciate that rather grandiose um, uh, introduction there. Um, yes, I am indeed a futurist. Um, I am also an author. Um, and newly appointed associate fellow with the uh, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, um, which helps me examine um, both the positive and negative impacts um, at the intersection of technology, uh, society and business and, and how they affect people and um, public policy. Um, I have indeed done a TEDx talk on the uh, impact of AI on humanity and society in the past. Um, I regularly give keynote speaks, uh, speaking slots um, on uh, emerging technology and future trends, the future of work, um, how people are going to go about their, their daily lives and what the technologies are that are going to impact them in the future, um, maybe in five, ten years' time. Um, I've worked with uh, numerous organizations to basically help them understand uh, the future curve and what's coming around the corner for them. Um, and give them a, a brief appraisal of um, how these uh, uh, technology trends could impact their business. That's kind of me in a nutshell. And I, I think there's a lot more. I, you know, we started, uh, I can't remember where we originally meet, met, but uh, I remember, you know, that when someone said to me when I was working at a, um, a tech company, who is the person that they need to hire? your name came up first as a kind of a digital thought leader. And, you know, I've seen, you know, some of your recent keynotes. Uh, I, you know, I love the the Bosch one you did for the connected world. Um, I think it resonates so much about what the future should look like and, and maybe some of the, the pitfalls that potentially people aren't thinking about. You know, what's your view on, you know, I, and I'm not going to go too topical, so we're not going to talk about the coronavirus, but you do <laughs> an amazing, you know, connected healthcare example. If that connected healthcare example was there today and in, in you know, how, you know, what do you think, how it would be different to maybe this epidemic that's just hit? How do you think, you know, connecting thing would actually have improved or potentially reduced fatalities or, and that's the big thing about, you know, changing the digital world. Um, so I think that the, the big message there is, is, is one of the words that you use, which is connected. So in the example that I, I kind of opened some of my keynote talks around uh, the future of work, um, it paints a, a, a day in the life of a patient going through this particular um, example. So they, you know, they fall over, they, they break their hip, for example. They, um, you know, they're diagnosed by... Um, devices in-house, uh, in their homes. Um, that information is passed to um, surgeons and algorithms um, in hospitals who 
medically diagnose and prescribe what needs to happen next. You're collected by an autonomous transport and taken to the, the hospital. Um, in that example, you know, your, your hip is already waiting for you, 3D printed with biosensors. Um, you undergo the operation with robots, um, just with a surgeon actually watching or, or supervising, but it's all done autonomously. Um, the biosensors are helping uh, the hospital and relaying that information back to your GP in real time to help you sort of convalesce and understand uh, your recovery schedule, which can be adjusted in real time along with the medication that you receive. Um, and, and and I think one of the big impacts that I, I kind of impress on people during those talks is it it's one journey through the healthcare system, but the amount of technology that takes place to enable it is massive. I mean, it cuts across numerous industries, um, you know, autonomous transport, 3D printing, IoT, um, cloud, date, big data, algorithms and analytics and AI. Um, when I go further into the example, I talk about using sort of smart contracts and how they could be uh, used to adjust insurance and utilities in real time um, to make micro adjustments according to how you are recovering at home, for example, so you get a lower rate um, on your utility bill because you'll be, you know, staying at home, so you'll be using a lot more electricity and, and gas and everything else. So, um, you know, so again, so you're bringing in other industries into that one, and you know, simple and in inverted comma example. Um, and I think when we look at coronavirus and, and future pandemics, we need to start thinking about linking up all these different types of technologies and industries to cater for um, an example like that, um, where your information will be passed across um, different entities, different departments um, that have never uh, shared that information before, but will connect to create a better service understand pandemic situations like this and the spread of a virus, understand how people can recover from it, uh, make strategies um, in line with, you know, preventative measures in line with delay or contain. I mean, we saw the Boris Johnson live stream last night, and I, I really don't think it filled the public um, in general with any confidence when you uh, compare it with the measures being taken place across Europe and across the world um, in terms of closing down schools, closing down large events and things like that. And and today what we've seen um, is organisations actually taking it upon themselves to take that action rather than waiting on the government, which is a kind of sad statement in itself. But if we had that kind of connected healthcare example, I think we'd all be able to make better and informed decisions in handling situations like this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the last time we, we met, um, I was at Hitachi and, and we, we talked, maybe talked a little bit about the predictive crime platforms and, you know, those kind of same kind of predictions could have been used using, you know, video analytics on street view, you know, thermal readings to, to see if people are, you know, not well, you know, identifying them from connected IoT devices like, you know, an Apple Watch having your ECG built into it. You know, I remember, and I know you spoke at Oracle as, and uh, before as well, but I remember hearing someone from Samsung saying, 
you know, one of the standard kind of journeys they have is, you know, the sensor detects that you've had a fall, it contacts your GP, it sends out some healthcare, like if your connected car hits something straight away, the GPX information has been sent, the emergency services come to your location, it knows how bad the impact was by the amount of Gs, you know, there's all this connected information that we can start utilizing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love it. You know, I love the idea that um, this technology can be used for good. And I think one of your talks, which I find fascinating, is kind of saying, well, you know, the younger child would, would you know, the younger generations would have a different use case where they're not trying to completely automate things. You know, they're not trying to make these, you know, factories run in the dark without any people. They're actually, you're part of that process. And, you know, I guess healthcare, you are part of that process. You know, I, I'm used Babylon and I've been using them for since they launched. Um, and it is a bit of an interesting one because, you know, there's only so much a Skype conversation with a random doctor can tell. You know, whereas, you know, the information that I've got on my on my on my smartwatch or on my Fitbit, minus the obviously occasion in the in the news where the military bases were getting <laughs> detected because they were pub- publishing the GPX locations for hidden bases and stuff. And the military were using them. But <laughs> minus those kind of mistakes, you know, the insure tech kind of landscapes can, you know, provide more, you know, disruptive products, you know. How do you make sure AI is for good um, and, well, digital's for good and it's kind of the the right use cases are kind of being defined um, in in the industry to help people? Um, It's a difficult one because uh, I was on a podcast recording um, this morning and we were talking about some really bad examples of um, connected devices or just technology in general which is being created with no actual useful purpose i mean one of them we we kind of uh, uh, sunk to the bottom of the marianas trench um, was um, the smart candle for example which is basically a wax candle that has built-in wi-fi um, and you can operate it with your smartphone um, and it, it kind of beggars belief that we're in a situation in society where these are the kind of best examples that um, people are coming up with when we have, uh, you know, all all walks of life in society who are struggling in one form or another who could benefit from those kind of brains put to good use to solve real world problems. Um, and I think that's the the crux of the the issue here is what can I create using you know, the technology that we have around us, whether it's Internet of Things, whether it's a smart device, whether it's um, using algorithms in an ethical way, what can I use them for that will help solve a real-world problem for somebody? Um, And I don't think that we're asking those questions, especially when we're looking to create something new. I think almost immediately the first question is, which VC will fund this for me and how much money can I make out of this and when will I get an IPO? And those are all, ultimately those are the wrong questions uh, that these companies are asking. And this is a behavioral shift, I think, that needs to happen in the technology sector um, in general or the business sector in general is um, it's not about how much money I can make and how much funding I can receive. It's about how many lives I can impact and but how many lives I can impact for the better 
I always kind of go back to this kind of, uh, I know Picard's just been launched as a new series, but, you know, this boldly dip going where no one's gone before, but for for the better of mankind, right? This The idea that you're all working together for the greater good to do to, to do amazing things. And I don't know if you've ever, you've come across Kaggle, which is um, a data science platform but, uh, that Google hosts. I've come across it before, yeah. And so I, I did the Kaggle, um, and so when you sign up, the, the example is the Titanic, which was good with your your link with the, the candle. And the idea was um, you get to work out who would have been saved on the Titanic by giving being given some data, and you go off and create an algorithm. Now, obviously, this is not going to help anybody, but it was interesting based on the fact of you know based on how you go and get higher accuracy le- levels. You know, there's kind of standard judgments that it was you know the rich people got off first, or women and children. Actually, it wasn't anything to do with that. There's a much more complex, and we you, you have to think outside the box. And they Kaggle have just launched a. a, 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 a a value well it's a it's a kind of a donation to people who could look at coronavirus and data uh, understanding the trends and look at uh you know where potentially the the growth areas are going to be um and yes that's only a data visualization kind of problem they're trying to solve but i think you know at least people are trying to do something for the for good to try and help you know society and and yes there might be a monetary uh, a reward in there because people are you know spending their time but actually that's not what it's for it's actually to to help improve things and if we can come together and actually work on a a digital project um that actually benefits everyone then you know it's a it's a clear winner and i think when your example with you know you go to primary schools and saying to them well what should the future look like you know that's you know that was always my interesting um kind of when, when i watched the ted talks you know they talk about well we don't know what's going to happen in 10 20 years so how can we create education and know what kind of skills people are going to need and what skill shortages we're going to have you know there's a lot of unknowns you know for people out there who are kind of new to this you know i know you're writing a book at the moment and it's probably too too little uh, small amount of spoilers that you can put out on there but you're could you give tell, talk a little bit about what the the future starts now and what's the gist of the book's going to be about yeah so um i started the book project with um Bronwyn williams who's another um futurist from south africa and my original idea um was to basically write a book um with a more pragmatic and realistic view of the future, trying to peel back some of the hype layers that you get from our, you know, our other sort of brethren in terms of like, you know, like um, Peter Diamantis and Ray Kurzweil, um, all the sort of old school futurists who bang on about um, the uh, singularity, for example. And, and then I thought, well, do you know what? I don't think it's, you know, I read uh, some business books and I kind of get tired halfway through because it's one person's point of view. And I thought, well, the future belongs to a lot more of of us than just me. Um, And I'm sure everyone would probably get bored of hearing me uh, uh, waffle on for several chapters. So I actually hit upon the idea of getting um, other futurists and other really sharp-minded people um, involved in the project to write a chapter based on their experience uh, and their knowledge um, on particular fields of uh, subjects. And so we have around 
20 contributors, um, each writing a chapter on any number of topics, including healthcare, education, uh, the future of work, banking, um, anything that sort of hits society in general. And it's aimed at both the general reader uh, to give them some sort of insight into what can come around the corner, but also uh, business um, audiences as well to give them some practical tips and to uh, some insight into, you know, how is it going to affect business? How is it going to affect their operating model? What do they need to do to prepare for this kind of sort of shift, uh, whether it's exponential or whether it's a linear shift? Um, and that's basically the gist of the uh, of the book. It comes out um, early 2021. We're currently in the middle of, of writing all the chapters um, and the rest of the year will be uh, me and Bronwyn sitting down with the um, editorial staff of Bloomsburg to basically go through all the all the submissions, edit them, and you know make it uh, make sure that the conclusions are um, you know fit for for for, for reading. So um, that's the project in a nutshell, and I'm really quite excited. Had a few um, ideas in the past, but I think having a number of contributors will actually bring a different kind of flavour to normal business books that have uh, been published before. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, you're going to have to do the audio book, book version of it as well, because <laughs> that would be awesome, especially if you can get each people to do each chapter. But or you just have to get someone like Stephen Fry to do each each one in a different voice. But uh, but yeah, I, 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 have you ever listened to or, or read Life 3.0? Have you come across that book? Um, I haven't. No, no. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. It's a, it's a, it's a one around uh, the fact that um, yeah, I, your TED talk you talk about um, narrow kind of AI versus kind of this the super inter, uh, super AI, which is kind of the takes over the singularity kind of view. You know, the kind of the distance between those compared to general intelligence, and you know, the idea behind the book is that actually super intelligence has already happened and actually it's using it's just running things behind the scenes it's investing in you know different industries it already played the stock market and actually now it's trying to help you know life by allowing people to continue working and you know this kind of universal um you know employment kind of benefit where people don't have to worry about their jobs being lost and it's but it's you know it's been there for the last 10 15 years and it's a, it's a really interesting one to, to interesting read if you get the chance but um i love that you've got a you've also do a bit of consultancy on the side as an anti think tank and i guess you've come across the the 10th man rule before um yeah yeah so um and i think it's uh, you know my no, I was uh, I was just going to say that um, from my perspective, the the anti think tank, um, the idea is to essentially be a little bit more brutal about uh, some of the advice that I give people and and tell tell organisations and the people who who hire me uh, some of the things that they don't want to hear rather than the things that they want to hear. And I think that's the problem with some consultancy aspects is that um, they hire. Um, to be told what they already know um, because it provides some comfort and therefore there's not that kind of level of independent challenge, um, you know, someone to, to, to turn around to them and say, well, don't be so stupid. This isn't the right thing for you to do. You should be doing X, Y, Z, or maybe you should just stop the bus and have a rethink entirely. Um, and 
and that's kind of the angle that I I enter when I when I speak to these kind of clients. And I, you know, I, I think we're, we've there's a lot of synergy in what we, we we talk about. And you know, for those people who are listeners who don't know what the tenth ban rule is, it, it was an Israeli government uh, initiative, which you know, I guess plays back to the World War Z kind of movie. But in actual fact, it was you know within every team. There's always one person out of the 10 who has to go against everything, play against devil's advocate, kind of give some, you know, kind of challenge the idea. But I, I did this for a, a peer conference recently. I did. I don't know if you've heard of tribal descent. It's a, it's a methodology Dave Snowden, who's the, from the UK, has kind of developed. No, no, I've not come across that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add it to the podcast link with all your links as well. But, uh, yeah, it's this idea where if you think of a tribal kind of uh, landscape, there's one person who he wears a mask uh, and asks the questions but never responds, and he's kind of seen as the chief or something. And the idea with everybody else is that they have to either do a dissent or an ascent depending on um, the approach to either play the item up into different possibilities, but then somebody has to then – take off to take the mask and then challenge against why it's n- this is not a good idea why it won't work and it's amazing because the idea is you kind of brainstorming and wipe you know putting ideas on the board and actually it's incredibly useful because people like you said don't want to challenge people and the idea with the mask is it's faceless so you know you don't see their reaction of oh no i'm saying something now that's pretty much kind of uh you know their baby's ugly um and you're right there's so many consultancies that will just tell you yeah what you need is this stack or you know you need to use you need to build your company to do you know be fully autonomous and and they don't think of all the other stuff like kind of the stuff you're talking about in your connected uh story where it was like well what's the environmental effects how does you know what's the bigger vision of you know up, you know upstream and downstream effects of what your business has and how do you interact with that on a kind of a social innovation perspective um i just think it's it's it'd be really interesting i know i'm not going to do too much promo but you I, i'm so looking forward to your podcast on there we we didn't start the fire uh, and you, you could you tell us a little bit about what you do on the podcast and and what kind of conversations you've been having sure so um we didn't start the fire is a new podcast series that was split into three strands um the first strand i call superstars which is Focused on um, really cool people, uh, individuals, or sort of young uh, young businesses and startups um, who are doing some really disruptive, um, amazing things in their particular industry sector. Um, whether it's uh, improving a particular service for one part of society, or whether it's just this person is someone really cool. So, for example, I spoke with the uh, world's youngest futurist. Um, uh, last night and um, we basically chewed the fat around Gen Z, around what he's doing to promote futurism um, in education. Um, he's based in Iran. Um, he's a, an absolutely lovely guy, really sharp, you know, and he's, you know, he's, I think he's under 12 years old. And, and I find that fascinating that, you know, he has created a movement um, amongst his peers um, and his uh, friends um, across the world um, to create this kind of sort of futurist movement um, at that level and at that age. 
Um, and I do think that um, his kind of story needs to be told. So hence the, the Superstars podcast. Um, the second sort of stream that I've started is um, a general talk show called Chewing the Fat, which is um, talking with interesting people just around uh, various sort of general topics around business, technology and society. Um, bit of a free for all centered on them mainly um, to sort of highlight their thought leadership in the area. Um, but it's, it's kind of casual chat and it's, it's quite relaxed. And the third stream, which uh, I, I know I'm going to have a lot of fun with, is called Get in the Sea, which if you haven't heard that term before, um, is pretty much um, a derogatory term levied at things that you wish would go off and drown or be or disappear at the bottom of the depths of the ocean and never to return. So we're kind of tackling that this as a, a rather brutalistic Room 101 um, series where guests come on the show and offload their pet peeves that they've seen that particular week in the news or if there's a piece of technology that they would wish to consign to the bin and we deconstruct it and have a bit of fun around that. So um, that's just kicked off uh, last week. Um, hopefully, you know, once the cutting room floor gets swept up a little bit, um, I'll have the first um, Getting the Sea podcast up and running by this weekend. Um, the first episode of Superstars is already out, and that was with a company called 3D Printer OS, um, who have created a cloud management platform that basically handles um, multiple 3D printers across thousands of users. Um, and interestingly enough, I spoke with the CEO yesterday because of the um, university shutdowns in the US, um, they expected a huge drop-off um, across the makerspaces that sit in these um, universities. What they've actually seen is the exact opposite. Students have literally logged on and continued their manufacturing work using the platform, and the usage and utilizations of the printers have risen um, as a result of the students going home and thinking, well, actually, I can actually still create my work, still continue um, what I'm doing because of this software. And I think that's, you know, that's in one university with 5,000 students. So I think that's quite a powerful story. Um, and these are the kind of companies that I like to speak to, especially for superstars. Absolutely. And, you know, part of them is, I guess, when you, you look at the TED kind of landscape is, you know, there's a, there's a message that they want to get out there, uh, a very powerful message. And, you know, sometimes they just don't have the voice to be able to do that. Um, I'm guessing, I know with the travel ban, we talked a little bit earlier, but, you know, you've got a lot of uh, events. You had a lot of events lined up. You know, do you see that you're going to change your delivery mechanism to to allow people still to receive that message in, in blogs and, and maybe looking at, you know, doing some stuff on, on other platforms to, to really get that out? Or, you know, how do you how do you see the best delivery mechanism for getting your voice out there is, is today? Yeah, I think um, over the next 12 to 18 months, I think we're going to see a lot of change. Um, and obviously speakers in general, but people like us, you and me, we're going to have to like adapt to almost living life behind the screen. So it would require a completely different setup. So whether, you know, more attuned to live streaming, to recorded sort of uh, audio and visual um, collateral, 
um, and engaging with organizations who are looking for those kind of services now as well, because, you know, we've seen major conferences um, shut down entirely. Um, Google, for example, is not um, allowing anyone on their site um, at all for meetings. So, you know, remote working is is going to take a bit of a hammering and we'll also find out which companies and which software um, are up to the task to promote it and enable it. So for me as a speaker, absolutely. I mean, the podcast, I mean, the podcast was quite fortunate timing in a sense. I had no idea that it was going to be this bad um, when I first uh, kicked off the idea. Um, but, you know, the podcast is going to be one way that I will get my voice out. I'll start to do a lot more virtual platforms, whether it's working with webinars with companies or doing live stream uh, keynotes as part of their sort of online events or virtual events now. But I think we all have to learn to adapt to doing things either remotely or virtually now. And those that don't, I think, are going to struggle. So I think those that rely on, uh, I guess, speaker management agencies who do things very old school um, are going to, I think, are going to struggle a little bit this year. And I think, you know, if you remember when IBM started talking about remote working, right, and then they kind of backtracked and get everyone realized they got all these great office locations. They wanted people back on site. You know, there's been a work, you know, for a lot of people and, you know, even in the UK now we've got the new IR35 legislation, which is hitting the contract market. Yeah. You know, this remote working isn't always encouraged, but with this kind of push, of course, it's going to have an impact on those systems that are, supporting collaboration you know the the stuff that we kind of take for granted of the slacks and teams of the world for for enterprise collaboration you know the video conferencing streaming services which you know uh, you know people always have problems with you know it's going to be interesting to to maybe it's going to bring out another side of how we we work better together and some new lessons on you know what collaboration really does look like in a in a digital world yeah absolutely um I mean, I've, I've, I'm a huge um, online proponent of, of Twitter, and I've seen um, a lot of activity in terms of people suddenly shifting to virtual and online community work and doing um, meetings offline. Well, online, I should say. Um, and and I, I and again, you know, I, I, I kind of stress that we're going to s- quickly sort the wheat from the chaff from which particular platforms can actually enable this. I think we're also going to see in the next 12 months a huge rise in startups looking to take on a challenge um, and, and and create different experiences as well. So while we kind of sort of look at the Zooms and the Slacks um, and maybe even some of the VR simulation stuff like Doghead and OpenSim to host sort of conferences and educational uh, things online, um, I think there will be a, a rise, a rapid rise in some young startups coming up with um, new and different types of uh, collaborative software solutions. Um, some will fail um, quite, you know, that's, that's going to be obvious. Uh, it might become a very quickly saturated market in the next 12 months. Some will rise to the challenge and actually create something brand new that we've never even thought of. Um, I see a lot of people talking around 
you know, uh, or, or mistakenly saying that virtual reality has got its time, but I think there's um, a, a misconception that you need virtual reality environments to live a virtual life online, and you don't. Um, I've always, I've always wondered the um, the disconnect between uh, thinking that you needed a hardware solution for a software problem. Um, and, and that's borne out of the fact that um, Magic Leap is now putting itself up for sale um, and looking for 10 billion. There's a classic example of something that was created that could have had so much potential, but they just didn't know what the market was. They created something without a market. Now, if they had created something like that now, potentially um, there could have been a market uh, for for using their software, for using their hardware and their software platform um, to enable virtual and remote working and more collaborative ways of doing things. But I think that that's, they've had their time. Um, I think they're sunk um, and someone else is just going to take their place, but do it better but, and without hardware. Yeah, I think, I you know, VR or AR, AR and MR have got a really strong place in the workplace going forwards, you know, minus the military use for, for things like HoloLens 2 and, you know, how that's been a, more of a focus. But actually it's bringing things, you know, it's still developing the industry and giving them that capability. And um, I, I actually, you know, you mentioned South Africa. I'm, I'm supposed to be going in a couple of uh, weeks and until, well, unless it gets grounded to do a, a conference on AI. And I, I had a journalist reach out to me saying, do you think based on the amount of unemployment, do you think AI is a, a sensible thing to be coming to talk about? Um, and I kind of said, well, of course it is. You know, augmented intelligence is, is probably, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest growing markets there. You know, there's an opportunity, you know, if you look at things like Mechanical Turk um, from Amazon for unskilled workers to be able to come and do things remotely. The Amazon are paying $25 an hour for you to recognize, solve puzzles, look at data, look at uh, image recognition for those misclarifications that, you know, the misclarification rates are still so high that actually augmenting intelligence is going to be going on for a very long time and actually that helps because the minimum barrier of entry is what access to the internet um on a device that it maybe is a thin kind of client view where you don't actually need to have much power you can do it from your phone you can do it from a library that actually enables quite a lot of people in south africa to start working you know do you think this giga economy is going to start making you know high skilled you know surgeons and and architects give them you know global reach you know is do you think that's going to be possible with the kind of the mr and and vr technologies well we've seen i mean if you look at um if you take the medical profession for example we've seen um examples where GPs can almost use telepresence to beam themselves into um, uh, households and do their consultations from from there rather than do home visits. Um, and in this case of the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, those kind of platforms, I think, will come to the fore a lot more because uh, rather than doing telephone um, consultations, you know, you could literally... Uh, speak to them on via your laptop or your TV. Um, and with any kind of sort of home kit, 
you could even be sent something in advance to be able to measure your temperature or or even get a reading from your Apple Watch, for example, if you're if you've already got some kind of smart device and enable them to sort of track some readings and then give a more accurate diagnosis. Um, I think these platforms will allow some people to work more effectively. I think you have to remember that not everyone is a knowledge worker or or has those kind of professions that will help. So, you know, people with more practical and trade-based skills like plumbers, electricians, and things like that are still going to have to come out. Um, I think that the connectivity in terms of engaging with them might change and might, and might become more slick. But for them, they're still going to have to practice their trade because that's what they're trained for. And it's not something that you can easily, I guess, hand off to, um, you know, an augmented platform to enable them to do it more efficiently. Um, they still have to be physically on site to do some of these things. So it's uh, a yes and a no situation. Um, I think it will improve um, and become more efficient for some professions. And I think for others, uh, it won't have that much a greater impact. Because I know in your, your last talk, you talked about kind of those kind of safe roles that people had across the U.S., um, and I remember a project working with a, a bobcat, which was a, um, for loading and unloading goods off a, of a container. And, you know, they, the way that they trained the autonomous bobcat was to use people who were trained in those, those type of vehicles. You know, they would do hundreds of hours of recording, which they'd be capturing how they unloaded and loaded sand or whatever it may be, and the difficulties and challenges in weather conditions. You know, you talk about truck drivers and that, and I know you had that great example with the autonomous trucks. You know, if that's going to be a supervisory role that you have and you're a truck driver, you know, it's safer to be drone assist, you know, uh, piloting that than, you know, not having any assist, you know, um, supervised uh, of the actual platform at all. You know, I think a lot of this kind of idea of shadow uh, systems where the AI is making the decision, but at the moment you've also got a human who's also overseeing that to make sure from a safe position they're actually it's getting done until they've got this accuracy rate that they can feel that it's safe enough um, or it's trained to a level where it can provide uh, those you know those to make those decisions in real time because like you said they're this you know this, they're very narrow focused but you know having you know a truck driver on his laptop. <laughs> you know, watching it, and I guess you know, if you, if you were playing online poker or something. You had, you were ten ten decking it. You could be driving ten trucks. But you know, you say this question of around, you know, what kind of roles are going to come through? Do do you see, you know, things like that happening? Um, you know, across the globe soon, sooner rather than later, or do you think we're still going to see that? You know, even though we may be ambitious about car to X and infrastructure to X, that actually. You know, they're still working on the standards. They're still, you know, got a long way to go. And, you know, we've not seen maybe those smart cities that we kind of expected to appear uh, to the level that we we, we expected. And uh, and really these self-driving cars are autonomous uh, uh, and they, they can only drive by making decisions by themselves and not with, with the surroundings. I think... Um... So we're still in uh, very much in the sort of hype cycle along, uh, around some of the levels of automation and technological advancement. Um, 
you know, for example, you know, autonomous cars, for example, a great one is, um, you know, Elon Musk saying we'll have full level five autonomy by, I think, this year or next year. Um, I don't see it happening at all, primarily because we're, we're almost still in the sort of user acceptance test phase where, you know, and it's being done in production rather than in a staging environment um, where people are, you know, losing their life and lives and there are crashes happening um, because these systems just aren't fully trained um, yet. And, you know, we're, it's it's the same everywhere. Even, you know, you mentioned smart cities. Why haven't we seen smart cities? Well, we still have crumbling infrastructure everywhere. We're still digging up roads to, uh, you know, replace faulty gas pipes and, and wiring and things like that. And we're still doing it in a very sort of manual fashion. Now, if you think of the infrastructure needed to support a smart city from scratch, that's a huge endeavor. Um, it's not just a case of knocking up some uh, smart cameras and things like that and, and, and then relaying all the data and then trying to understand that data. You know, you're talking about um, giving every home the ability to have some kind of smart system installed. And if you look at some of the, the houses in the UK, for example, we're looking at, you know, there are some sort of Edwardian, Victorian, you know, uh, buildings out there with solid walls that have never been rewired or replumbed in decades. And now you're asking people to, to expect uh, a smart system being installed in them. Um, I think we have very ambitious uh, targets, but no real common sense on how to reach them. And we also have very high expectations of the technology um, but no real understanding of the capabilities that, uh, or the capability level that exists today, plus the skill level in order to um, implement them at scale. Yeah, I, I, as as a uh, proud new Tesla three uh, owner with autonomous mode, you know the fact the UK only allows you to drive on slip roads to the motorway on the motorway. And, you know, you have to have one hand on it at least to keep it from deactivating. Um, it seems fairly primitive to what we were kind of expecting, that it would be self-driving, you know, be able to make a lot more discussion, uh, you know, decisions. And, you know, I think getting technology commercially available to consumers is, is kind of it's something that's always driven the industry, you know, having a connected home, so your, your smart building technologies, you know, the idea of all this kind of slam technology that we've been using for such a long time with, you know, predictive maintenance, you know, applying that to health, but, you know, to people's health on a daily basis. You know, we, we don't see that technology yet. We, we see, you know, we're getting all this information from our, um, our Fitbit or our Apple device, um, and what is it actually telling us? What is it saying to us? What recommendations is it making to us? It just doesn't seem that it's it's there yet for the standard adopter. You know, the 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 late, you know, the early to late majority. You know, are they really using this technology, or do they see it as something that's just high tech wizardry with no real purpose? It's um, it's a really interesting challenge, and I think that's why your your messaging around Gen Z and kind of they're really the they're going to be living in this future so they need to kind of be 
on board with, well, what, what is that future going to look like? Not kind of what we're reacting to problems that maybe are much smaller scale um, and maybe not as important, but, you know, are looked from a revenue generating perspective. And like you said, IPO kind of driven, you know, how do we actually make money on this idea or, you know, on a particular, uh, you know, industry because we see we can mix these two technologies together and, you know, which 5G, so that's going to change the world. But in reality, does it? You know, that's the the big thing. And I, I'm hoping that actually for subscribers to this podcast, they're actually signing up to your um, your podcast on on We Didn't Start the Fire. We, you know, we'll give them some of those answers and some of those kind of questions and be, you know, put, you know, the hard questions out there. I know you've done stuff with Huffington Post before and Forbes and, and Wired Magazine. You know, it's great to have somebody in the industry who's fighting for those people and actually who's thinking about what it means for for, for them in their, their their digital life going forward. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show, Theo. And, and, and as a parting kind of d- uh, advice, do you have, you know, would you be able to tell listeners on the best way to get in touch with you and, you know, maybe give you give some kind of links or some recommendations of uh, of other things to, to to check out yeah sure so you can find me via my website which is theopriestley.com um i also lurk on linkedin and twitter so linkedin is just you'll find me just by my name uh, i very much doubt there's any other theo Priestley's kicking about in there um and on twitter you'll find my handle which is uh, t-p-r-s-t-l-y um uh, and you'll know me by the blue check mark there as well um that's where i normally hang out the podcast is listed on my website, as are my um, speaking credentials and where I've written before as well. If you want to engage, um, please get in touch. If you want to be a guest, I guess, um, get in touch as well via the website. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Theo, and thanks for making such a massive contribution to our digital future. Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan.